Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got Christian Votig. And we're going to talk about all things FP&A. Christian, just to start off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me here, Kevin. So I'm originally from Germany, as you may be able to hear from my accent. That's where I grew up. But I actually have never worked in Germany. I started my career in Switzerland at Procter Gamble. It's a large consumer goods company. Spent four years there. One of my projects was to lead an investment business case where we were thinking about building a factory somewhere. It was a $100 million investment. And I learned a lot during that time. And then after four years there at P&G, I ended up moving to the States because that's where my wife is from. We met before when we studied abroad in England, in undergrad. And in the States, I moved to New York City because why not, right? Lots of opportunity here. What? Why not indeed? Yeah. Then I was very fortunate to be able to start at Unilever. So Unilever is also a large consumer goods company. They're based in London, but the largest business is in, in North America. And I was very fortunate because at Unilever, every one and a half to two and a half years, they rotate people into a different role. So it was fantastic for me to learn. You know, I was always an FPNA, but I partnered at the beginning with tea factories. And then I worked closely with the cross-functional team that works on innovation in the hair care sector. So I know I learned a lot about shampoos. And then I worked at the Center of Excellence, where we did the forecasting and planning for the entire marketing budget in North America. At the time, it was just over a billion dollars, which was super interesting to work with that on that scope. And then I was also leading a team where it was joint accounting and FP&A. It was a great learning experience there, just being able to do that much, but realizing that the core FP&A skills transition, you know, no matter if you work with factories or if you work with marketing or if you work with supply chain, then I was interested to, you know, learn more. So I, I did my MBA and there people told me that, hey, you should maybe take a look at tech because in the tech industry, decision-making happens at a completely different speed than in a large multinational consumer goods company. And that's something I was really curious about because at Unilever, I really enjoyed the mentors I had there and how much I learned. But decision-making could be a bit slow because you always had the regional team, the global team who had to approve. And it made sense for those big decisions where you have to create a product and there's a long lead time for that and there's a lot of invested capital. But I wanted to experience something different. So I joined Squarespace, which is a website builder company, about 1,500 employees at the time. And I was fortunate that I joined right when we started to get ready to take the company public. So I had the chance to work closely with the CFO and get her ready to, to have her first meeting with Wall Street analysts. And that was great because I really learned how to look at the business from all angles and tell the financial story of the business. And when I joined Squarespace, I also realized that even though the numbers are completely different and the size of the company is different, 
the processes and the challenges that FPNA people face are the same. Things like how do I improve my forecast accuracy or how do I get my business partners to share information earlier or how do I influence people to take the analysis that I've done seriously and actually go and implement it. Now, these challenges are the same. And so I thought, huh, maybe there's a way I can help people navigate this and teach people. Because when I was at Unilever, I had the chance to lead the internal finance development team where we would create Excel courses, et cetera, for my fellow colleagues. Back then, I fell in love with teaching because I felt it's it's so rewarding to sit across someone and you teach them something and you see their eyes light up when they get it, when they feel like, okay, they, they really know something that they didn't know before. And that's something that motivated me. And so when I was at Squarespace, I felt that, okay, my skills seem to be translatable, even though it's a completely different industry. Maybe I can teach that to other people who aren't as fortunate as I was in terms of having the mentors that I had. Because when you work at large multinational companies, there's always people who've been there longer than you. I work with people who had 20, 25 years experience in the space. And I know that for a lot of people out there working in finance and FP&A, if you work at a smaller company, you don't have these mentors. And so I started to put together an FP&A training program. I wanted to teach it live as a live uh, public seminar because I enjoyed that that direct interaction with people. So that was in 2021, the beginning of 2021. I put the course together. I didn't really expect much, but it ended up being received very, very well. I was, I was really surprised by how well it did and even just a few months after I launched it. And so I kept working on it. I kept building it. I kept expanding it. And yeah, since then, I've taught it every two months. And it even led to me getting an offer working at an FP&A software company because they were interested about the course and what I was teaching. And so I was the head of training there. I taught the internal sales and marketing teams, but also customers about FP&A best practices until a point came where I said, okay, now it's time to make the jump. Now it's time to see if I can build this company and turn this into something bigger. And so, yeah, I quit my job and now I'm a full-time educator where I teach FP&A skills to finance teams and business leaders and yeah, really enjoy it. So that's where how I got here. I suppose we'll tell the audience that we're in partnership, that yeah. CFO delivering your course, Catherine Marcus is delivering it. And actually, we I did a podcast with Catherine where we talked about the course. Catherine is delivering this into UK, Europe and places further east, while you're still delivering this in the United States and the US time zones. Yeah, I was so, very excited when uh, Dan Wells, the CEO of GrowCFO, reached out to see if we can partner. Because the thing is, I really enjoy teaching live. And I think that people get more out of a course when they can ask questions, when they can do breakout rooms with their peers. But at the same time, then you're bound by time zone differences. So I found a time that I think works well for the West Coast, for the East Coast, but for people living in Europe or further East, it can be challenging because it's in the evening. And so I was excited when I had the opportunity to collaborate and partner with Grow CFO. And now we have someone teaching FPNA bootcamp, you know, the FPNA uh, fundamentals course in 
time zone that makes more sense in Europe. And yeah, Catherine is a fantastic teacher. And uh, I think you had her on the podcast before, right? Yes, we've talked through the FBNA bootcamp. I think we recorded four or five weeks ago. And actually, Christian, I wanted to have you on that recording, but I think you were off on leave somewhere at the time. Yeah, I was visiting my family in Germany. Three-way conversation. But tell me a little bit more about FPNA and what you've discovered the secret source of people getting FPNA to really work in a company. What makes the difference? For me, what I find so fascinating about FPNA is that it's really a combination between technical skills and solving puzzles, essentially, and then also psychology and understanding people. So things like creating a forecast, financial modeling, process optimization, that's all about solving puzzles. But then you also have business partnering, influencing people, and telling the financial story of the business, you know, that's much more about understanding people and psychology. And I think that this combination is really, really special. And companies need to realize that it's really not just about the hard skills. You know, yes, it absolutely matters that you understand Excel, that you understand how a discounted cash flow model works, or how you can do tribal-based planning and zero-based budgeting and all that. But to have a real impact, we need to do more than just create fancy presentations and complex financial models. We also have to convince people that what we're recommending is worth putting resources behind and worth putting into action. Because that's also how I think the FP&A role becomes most rewarding and how people really rise to their best when they see that the recommendations that they're making are actually influencing strategies, are influencing tactics, and are influencing where the company is going. Yeah. So it's that combination. Certainly zero-based budgeting, as you've mentioned it. My experience of doing zero-based budgeting is that the, the number crunching is the easy bit. Right. The change management is the difficult bit. Yeah. So Setting out the the bar to say what's in the business plan strategically. What do we do it? What are we starting? What are we stopping? What are we continuing? Yes. Now go build your budget around that. And the things that aren't in your budget simply because they were in your budget last year and the year before, they're in your budget because they're in the strategy. You're exactly right. The thing with zero-based budgeting is the first step is just Getting everything down in a large spreadsheet, all the transactions, all the vendors, all the things you're doing, that's the easy part. But then getting people to actually look at that and deciding, okay, this is something we should keep. This is something we should stop. This is something we negotiate. That's the hard part. And you know, I was in charge of implementing zero-based budgeting at Unilever when we did that for the first time. And yeah, the challenge was that basically you're telling budget owners, hey, I want you to figure out how to spend less money and how to return money back to the company. And that's a tough ask because they feel like the more funding they have, the more they can do and the easier it gets for them to achieve their targets and their goals. How we ended up solving it was, so we were very conscious about that. And unfortunately, you know, we thought about that early and we said, okay, we're not actually taking money away. So we'll ask you to identify things that we can remove that are just don't have the return on investment that we're looking for. But then we are not dropping that money to the bottom line or, or giving it somewhere else. 
it rather it goes into a central fund that's still earmarked for you, marketing team, for you, sales team to spend in the future. But it will be reinvested into the things that you identify as making more sense. And that completely changed the game because then they thought like, okay, I'm not hurting myself by lowering my budget. I'm actually, I'm helping us all have um, better efficiencies by repurposing and reinvesting the money more appropriately. Yeah, I know that one of the biggest challenges that I've had doing that sort of exercise is the person who's being asked to give up their their favorite project. Everybody seems to think that they can have the, the one exception to the zero base. Yeah, you can have a few exceptions, but you can't have too many. And that's a really, really tricky one to manage. People have a lot of themselves invested in some of these projects. They've yes. been going for years. Yeah. They're really passionate about things. They struggle to give them up. I dare say you've had a reasonable experience of, of that sort of thing when you've been negotiating budgets. Yeah, exactly. It's like with any negotiation, it comes down to understanding what people really care about and what they really mean when they say, okay, this is critical. Because sometimes I think that also finance teams are not asking enough questions around what are maybe some qualitative aspects that this particular project unlock, you know, that are hard to measure in dollar amounts. So for example, even though the ROI of a, a certain project may not look that great, it may make other projects easier to execute because the resources that they're getting can be used on other projects as well, maybe that, that we're not seeing. So oftentimes things are more complicated than we think at first thought. That's something I've learned over the years. And so it just all comes down to asking questions around why is this your favorite project? What would happen if it would were to go away from one day to the other? What would happen if we could double the investment into that? What's the one thing that is not just the biggest impact on the bottom line, but the biggest impact on achieving our long-term strategy to also not take that long-term view out? And so, yeah, I think it all comes down to asking the right questions. This is what I love about FPNA. It's as, as much about understanding the business as it is about yes. understanding the numbers. Numbers, Christian accuracy of numbers when you're doing this what's your view about how accurate does fpna need to be and we're always talking about can we have more accurate forecasts things like that but yeah is the accuracy of the numbers absolutely critical that's a great question and that's sometimes also a bit hotly debated because the thing is that if you're a cfo putting your reputation a bit on the line by saying hey i expect that in the next quarter we will grow our revenue by 23% because they're putting themselves out there. They are responsible for the number. So they want to make sure that the accuracy is satisfactory. But at the same time, we don't want to spend all month just chasing after another one or two percentage points in, in forecast accuracy because then the team doesn't have enough time to do what I would argue is even more important, which is the so what part. So, okay, so we're changing our forecast. We're taking it up or down. What does it mean for the business? What does it mean for how our tactics, how our strategies translate into tactics and action plans? Making that connection. And you can only make that connection by talking to your business partners and taking the time to look beyond the numbers. 
So what I recommend companies when they come to me and they say, hey, how can I improve my forecast accuracy? I would recommend combining multiple forecasting methods because then some of them have advantages that are offset by other methods. You know, some are biased in this direction, some are biased in that direction. And that may sound at first glance as if I'm saying, oh, you need to spend more time. But it doesn't necessarily mean that because there are forecasting methods that are very time consuming, like driver-based planning, for example, very effective. So I think companies definitely should do driver-based planning. But you can combine them with things like statistical methods, where you set up a model once, maybe you work with a third party to get data scientists involved to, to get it up to a high degree for the accuracy you need. And then once you've set it up, you can just run it again every month and it doesn't take a lot of additional time. And the thing is that a statistical model is biased as well, not in, in the sense that it's very sensitive to changes in historical data. So that's a disadvantage. But the advantage is that it doesn't suffer from human biases, like being overly optimistic, for example, is, is, is very common. But then when you combine that with something like driver-based planning, where you can be more nuanced, you can take context into account, then typically I've seen that the combination of the two gives you the best balance of not spending too much time on focus accuracy, but still getting an improvement there. I suppose it depends what's the purpose of the forecast or the model that you're building. If in your first example, uh, the CEO is going out and saying publicly, oh, we're going to get 15% growth next year. He's gone public. If it's, I suppose if it's 14.5, it's not going to matter that much. But if it is significantly different, he's got a reputational problem. I'm thinking in terms of you produced a model and the model's about making a decision. Do we do this? Do we do that? Do we invest in this project? My take is that as finance people, we're used to financial accounting. We're used to reconciling every penny, every cent. I don't think that's necessary to the same degree when it comes to decision making. As long as the number is in the right direction, does it matter? 100% agree. And you're right that we are biased towards trying to count every cent on the one hand, because university, to get an A, you have to get 100% correct or 90% correct. And the more you get correct, the better. So we kind of trained on trying to achieve perfectionism. And then a lot of FP&A professionals also have an accounting background and an accounting, of course, you know, we need to make sure that we're doing everything exactly right. There's a lot of laws that you want to make sure you're adhering to. But when it comes to FP&A, I 100% agree, we shouldn't go for 100% accuracy because for two reasons. One, there's this thing called the Pareto principle. You know, it's also called the 80-20 rule, where oftentimes there are Let's take variance analysis, for example, the difference between forecasts and actuals. Oftentimes, there are just um, 20% of the line items that explain 80% of the difference. And it would take you a significant amount of time to get from 80 to 90 to 100. And at that point, it's not really helping you make decisions. And that's really what it comes down to. That's number one. And the other thing is, when we're doing forward-looking work, like forecasts, planning, strategy work, there's always a degree of uncertainty. 
And depending on the industry you're in, that degree of uncertainty can be high. And so there's nothing you can do with doing more complex modeling to avoid that. You have a decrease in marginal effect by trying to spend more on getting to that 100% uncertainty because it's impossible just by the nature of the business. And for those two reasons, I 100% agree. Let's maximize forecast accuracy. It should be about optimizing. And then, as you said, there are factors we need to take into account, whether we are a public company, where we have certain guidances that we have to give out to Wall Street and and, and track against that. There's a different degree of uh, rigor that companies needs to have versus when you're a private company. That's really important to keep in mind. I'm thinking of my own experience doing activity-based costing. When you're looking Mm -hmm. to say, which are my profitable products, which are my profitable customers? And you probably start by doing some activity analysis and asking people how they spend their time. And you'll give them a few activities and say, okay, allocate your time against those. And they start thinking, well, okay, Kevin, I'm going to have to go away and record my time, put a timesheet together for this. No, 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 no. Let's do it more basic than that. In chunks of 5%, where do you spend your time? Because my experience is it doesn't matter if you think you spend 25% on an activity. If it's actually 24 or it's actually 26, it's not going to make that much difference in relative terms as to the decision that you're going to make on the back of the analysis you produce. It's going to give you analysis that's in the right ballpark that says, oh, we're making huge product profit on these customers of these products or this geography, depending how you've segmented things, versus these ones here that we're not making money on. You don't have 100% accuracy to make the decision to start this and stop this. Yeah, no, that's a great example. Another example I have is when you're forecasting expenses, it sometimes happens that department heads make deals with each other where they're trying to help each other. For example... The head of marketing may say, hey, I agreed with the head of uh, R&D to move $5,000 for my budget to his because he really needs it for something. Can you please make sure that that's reflected in the forecast and in the budget? And that's something where sometimes there's a disconnect where really $5,000 does not matter. It's a rounding error in the forecast, especially in the forecast where you're doing forward-looking work. So Sometimes you can have challenging conversations where when you push back and say, no, we're not doing that, they say, yeah, but I agreed with them and he really needs the money. So sometimes you have to find the right balance. But I think that's also a good example of where we need to communicate with people and set thresholds and say, look, if it's less than X, depending on your company size, we shouldn't really go through the whole process of restating forecasts and changing budgets. Christian, when you're introducing one of the reasons that you entered the classroom to train other people, you were talking about your life in a big company like Unilever, having mentors, individuals that had been around the business and been doing FP&A things for 20, 25 years that could pass on that experience. I agree exactly with what you're saying about smaller companies and not necessarily having that, but the rate of change at the moment, AI coming in, disrupting things, is that going to be quite as important going forward? I would say that AI can help with a lot. First of all, it doesn't replace uh, financial analysts. 
yet, right? And not for the foreseeable future. And I, I think that there are certain things that still benefit from experience, especially when it comes to the interpersonal part of FPNA. How do you navigate gray zones, for example? Because uh, th- that's another area that's really important. But when I teach finance business partnering, I tell people, look, we need to act like a lawyer rather than a police officer. Instead of telling people what they should or shouldn't do, you know, black and white thinking, we understand when we can take shortcuts, when it's okay to take shortcuts. We understand when you can shift the budget from A to B and it doesn't make a big difference. Or you know someone else is going underspend, so you can say it's okay that you're overspend a bit gray areas like that. I see that AI struggles with those nuances that require context, that require a lot of years of experience that help you understand, okay, because I've been at this company for a long time, I know that you don't have to worry about this. Yes, it's technically against the rules, but you don't have to worry about this. And that's also something that differentiates highly effective leaders from average leaders is learning to navigate these gray areas. And the more nuance you need for decision-making, the less likely I think it is that AI will be able to replace that. Where do you see the big advantages of having AI to help you? Yeah, so in FP&A specifically, there is machine learning. You know, and machine learning is a subset of AI. It's taking historical data and finding patterns and projecting into the future based on those patterns. And machine learning actually has been around for quite some time. And in fact, when I was at Unilever, I was in charge of implementing a machine learning model when we were working on the the working capital forecast. There, I was working with a third party. I think it was based in India. And they put together a machine learning model. We implemented it. And I thought it works great. You know, it was uh, easier than I expected. We got it up and running fairly quickly. But then we had a variance with the forecast. The variance actually was lower than what we had before when we did it ourselves. But then how do you explain it? So we had a variance of 5% between forecast and accuracy, between forecast and actuals. And the leadership team asked, okay, so why is there a 5% variance? I went back to the data scientist, the, the third party who put the machine learning model together. And he's, I asked him, why is there a variance? Can you help me explain that? And he said, he started talking about how they're using 12 different algorithms that compete against each other. And then the best one is chosen according to the narrowest 95% confidence interval. And there's a neural net and there's a transformer and maybe 10% of what he was talking about. I realized that that's not how we can explain it because some of these algorithms are even a black box for the data scientists because they're so advanced. And so I thought, hush, should we maybe invite someone from their team over to our office so we can explain them a bit about the business? Or should we send someone from our team over there so they can learn more about AI so we can bridge that gap? Because I thought the problem was that we understand the business very well. We don't understand AI. And they understand the machine learning algorithms very well, but they don't understand the business. And so we thought about that until I realized that that's actually not the problem. The problem was that when you work with AI, with machine learning, it can be very, very powerful, but you have to look at it differently. It's not about how well the model works, like it is with traditional forecasting. It's about what goes into the models. It's about the inputs. It took me a while to realize that. But it's about what different metrics are you using for your projections? How granular is the data? 
And what's cool about working with a machine learning algorithm is you can act like the past hasn't happened yet. You can say, hey, let's forecast last year for me. And then you can compare that immediately to what the actual performance was. And that's how these models learn. And that's how you can train them. And that's also how you can experiment, how you can put in additional numbers. You know, For example, you could include unemployment figures or inflation numbers, economic indicators. And we realized that that has a real impact on the forecast accuracy. And then that was the mindset shift we had to make is that we had to say, okay, when you ask us about the forecast accuracy, what we can do is we can change the parameters, we can change the inputs, and we can tell you how that impacts the accuracy. But we can't do the traditional approach where we say, okay, A and B was wrong in the model. And so we're changing that and hope to improve the accuracy in the future. But once we managed to get that mindset shift, it improved the accuracy. And at the same time, it saved us a lot of time because it was all automated. So I would definitely recommend people taking a look at uh, machine learning. Brilliant. It's going to be interesting to see the way things go. But I think the, the reassuring bit is that you still do need people looking at the gray areas. There's yeah. always going to be uncertainty. There are always going to be trade-offs. There are always going to be things that need value judgments. Always going to be in the middle of this. And I, I must admit that I've got into a position of using AI quite a lot, not in the FPNA area, because I, I don't do an awful lot in that area these days, but in terms of speeding up the process of say producing this podcast. Mm -hmm. AI is a fantastic research assistant it's no good at producing the finished product <laughs> exactly generative ai like your jet gpts of the world can also help fpna professionals with storytelling you know when you have your numbers and you're trying to figure out okay how do i summarize that in an email how do i get an executive summary from this long long document i think ai can help it but i agree it can't get you there all the way. It can give you ideas. It can point you in the right direction, perhaps, but you still have to put the final product together yourself. Yeah. Certainly, I find ChatGPT so it can give you some quite wrong answers when it's just looking back at the history of the internet and what it's found out for itself. But a lovely use that I've got is to take a, a transcription of say, mm. this podcast and I'll say, oh, please produce me a summary suitable for mm -hmm. podcast show notes. And that makes life a whole lot easier for me, who used to sit there for two hours, listening back to the recording, working out what we talked about. How do I express that in a nice, simple way? And then there's another clever one that says, okay, these are the show notes. Now, chat GPT, write me a LinkedIn post to promote this podcast. <laughs> right. right. It's incredible what I can yeah. do in the writing space. Yeah. And again, it's probably not that the thing that gets posted isn't the final mm -hmm. draft. The final draft's still got to come from a human. So, Christian, you've talked us through a, a long transition that's seen you move from Switzerland to the United States, that's seen you move from fast-moving consumer goods into tech and then into the training space. What's next for Christian Votig? That's a great question. I really do enjoy teaching, so I definitely want to keep doing that. I've also given a few speeches in the past as a public speaker, as, as a keynote speaker, and I realized that I really enjoy 
doing that as well, which is related to teaching, but it's different when you're standing on the stage. I really find that in, enjoying. And it's just so exciting to be a creator at this time. You know, as you mentioned, there are so many tools available. So many, I feel like I have a virtual assistant that I always have available and I don't even have to feel like I'm bothering him or her, you know, because it's just always there in the browser tab. And that can make your life a lot easier. What I was a bit concerned about going on this journey was that I thought it would be a bit lonely because I thought that I would miss my colleagues working at a large company. And I do miss them. But I also realized that just by sharing a lot on LinkedIn, so I post regularly on LinkedIn about FPNA and I have a weekly newsletter. Through doing that, I met incredible people. Some of them are very good friends now. I met them in person, I met with their families. And we are helping each other, we're encouraging each other. And so, yeah, I realized that it really doesn't have to be a lonely journey to go out there on your own and and building your company. And that's super rewarding. And that's definitely where I hope also to spend more time with in the future is exchanging ideas and collaborating with others like GrowCFO as well. Brilliant. Christian, thank you for being this week's guest on the GrowCFO Show. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you.